0: Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You that um, You have created us and given us life. And Lord, we thank You that You've chosen to reveal Yourself to us. And out of Your love and mercy, You've given us the, the hard news that in fact we are in rebellion against You and guilty before You, but in Your grace You've provided a way of salvation to be restored to You for an eternity. Lord, we thank You that You've revealed to Yourself uh, through these people in the Word, and we pray that you would help us learn how to uh, to hear you better and respond the way you desire us to do. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This class, uh, this lesson is how to read in the course, how to read and interpret scripture, is this particular class is going to focus particularly on Old Testament narrative, narrative in the Old Testament. And narrative, while it has various technical definitions in linguistics, basically it just means stories. A narrative is just an account of something that happened. And a great bulk of the Bible is made up of narrative, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I would argue that it's it's really the basis of, of everything that's in the Bible, because all the stuff that's not narrative, like Psalms and Proverbs and a lot of the uh, prophets and the epistles, although they're not narrative, they are dealing with the narrative. In other words, it is God communicating to people about where they are in the story of what God is doing in history in the world. And so all of those psalms and proverbs and prophets and epistles don't make any sense whatsoever apart from the story of what God is doing in the world. And often you'll see that, um, especially in in the narrative books, often whether it's uh, in the Pentateuch or later during the Judges or um, in the post-exilic period, you'll often see God's spokespeople, what they'll do to explain to the people, um, say in the Old Testament, to explain to the Israelites why they're in the mess they're in and what God is doing and what to do about it. They will review the whole story from the beginning up to their point in history because that's how you understand what's going on in life. So that's what Old Testament narrative is. So um, what we're going to do today... There's going to be two parts to this. Uh, We're going to spend about half an hour on encouraging people to read the whole story the way it was written. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Read the whole story the way it's written. Then um, the other part of the class, then, we'll talk about how Hebrew stories are written. That is, we'll talk about specific things about how... uh, hebrew stories work but what i want to start on i want to spend probably nearly a third of the class emphasizing the importance of reading the whole story so the first thing i want to say is what constitutes the whole story so i'll give an example in uh my mind blanked out in first kings i believe it is we read about The Queen of Sheba visiting King Solomon. Okay, if we want to read about the Queen of Sheba visiting King Solomon, what would constitute the whole story? Well, we can read a few paragraphs about the visit itself, but that visit is just one part of the bigger story of Solomon's life and reign. It's a component part of that. Well, what about the reign of Solomon? Well, that's just a component part of a bigger story. And that's the story of the period of the monarchy in Israel. That is the period of kings, a period of about 500 years. Well, is that the whole story? Well, that is just a component part of the bigger part of the story of the nation of Israel, basically, as a geopolitical saying from the exodus when God basically gives them a constitution, gives them the law, until the exile when they're carried away as prisoners by the Babylonians. But is that the whole story? Well, no, that's not the whole story because that is just a component part of the story of God calling a guy named Abraham... And saying, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to bless you and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And all of these are component parts. So let's think about this. Um, let's think about the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon. If you just read those two or three paragraphs, it sounds like everything's rosy. Solomon's famous and she's wowed by his wisdom. But what comes just before that and what comes just after her visit? Well, what comes just before the visit is Solomon is blessed by Lord. He asked the Lord for wisdom and he's given wisdom and he's provided a lot of things. She comes to visit him. What's the next thing that happens right after she leaves? Yeah, he continues to accumulate wealth, does a lot of horse trading. We'll think a minute about whether that's good or bad. If you don't know the rest of the story, that looks pretty good, but you know you're in bad territory a few paragraphs later when he starts building pagan temples for his wife's idols. Okay, let's spread out a little bit more to... um, The period of the monarchy, beginning with Saul, there's about a 500-year period when Israel has human kings. Why do they have kings? Was that a good thing, to demand a king? No, no. It wasn't. And what did God do when they asked for a king? He told them that they had done something wrong, that they were rejecting him as their king, and if you want a human king all right, if you want somebody like Hubbard to be your king, I'm going to let you have a king like him. But here's what human kings are like. And he basically talks about how bad it's going to be. Now, in a way, it doesn't look that bad if you just read that, but it's only because we're used to the way we treat each other. But what God is saying, that's not how I would treat you. Well, how did Solomon treat his people? You don't really know it until his son becomes king. But Solomon was all of the things that God had warned them a human king would be like. Very oppressive. Very oppressive. Um, Let's spread out some more to the period of um, Israel as a geopolitical nation. I'm going to say that from the time they came out of Egypt until they're defeated by the Babylonians and carried away into exile when God had Moses lead the people out of Egypt, there are two particular things I'll point out here. One is He gave them very strict warning in Deuteronomy as they were preparing to enter the Promised Land. Chapter 8, He gave them very distinct and strong warning. He said, now, I'm, I'm going to do what I told you I was going to do. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to cause you to prosper. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. But you've got to be very careful because what does he warn them might happen when they get into the little promised land and they prosper? Forget what? They don't need hmm? need God. That's right. Because they're going to think, he says, because you're going to think you did it by your own strength. You're, you're going to think you're faster, stronger, smarter, and that's why you're rich, and you're going to forget that I'm the one who gave you every single thing you have. I even gave you the strength. Yeah, you did go out and plow your field and harvest, but only because I gave you the strength to do it. So he warns them of that. And then secondly, of all things, this trips people up, but it's typical of the Scripture. 500 years before they rebelliously ask for a king, God tells them, when you ask for a king... And he doesn't say anything about whether it's right or wrong. He just says, when you ask for a king like the nations have, here's the rules he needs to follow. Okay? So, we come to Solomon. Immediately after the queen of Sheba leaves, it starts describing his wealth and prosperity. And we're reading that and we're thinking, wow! Wow! Solomon goes, man, he's got it all together. But then it begins to, hey, this sounds familiar. It is exactly the list that God has said a king is not to do that. And then it becomes more apparent, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. When you're reading it there in 1 Kings, it sounds a little, is this good or is this bad? And I think there's a reason why the writer makes that a little bit ambiguous. <clears throat> so, um so we spread out even more and let's go all the way back to, uh, to Abraham. And God calls Abraham and says, all right, I'm going to make of your descendants a great nation. And through them, I'm going to bless, uh, bless the world. It's interesting that tying all this together, just a few paragraphs before God calls Abraham, um, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And we're told that what the people were doing that was wrong, one, they were failing to spread out like they were supposed to, but also they were building a tower to heaven, in order to make a name for themselves. They're going to make a name for themselves. Well, when God calls Abraham about three paragraphs later, and he says, All right, you leave all those wicked nations that are behaving that way, and I'm going to make a view of a nation, and I will make your name great. I will make your name great. And from then on, what we see is people trying to make their own name great rather than depending on the Lord. Here's a, it's kind of a trivia question. I hadn't actually thought about this until recently. What's the very last event that's recorded for us in the Old Testament? I think I know what the last event is that's recorded for us in the Old Testament. If you hadn't thought about it, I I didn't think about it until recently. I'm pretty sure that the very last thing that's recorded for us in the Old Testament is Nehemiah is beating his fellow Jews when he's come back from Susa and he's beating them and pulling their hair out of their head. Because why? They're doing the same sins that their forefathers... He had been doing for 1,500 years. And he specifically named Solomon in his wisdom. And he says, even Solomon with all of his wisdom, when he neglected God and followed his wives, instead brought all of this disaster on us. Solomon is part of the reason for the exile. Because he led the country... I mean, his, his pagan temples stood for 200 years. So, <clears throat> we read about the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon. You've got to read the whole story and see it in context. Um, and when we look at this whole thing, <clears throat> we see that what God, when He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you bless the nations when you look through the rest of scripture you see what being blessed is even in the old testament it's not just the new testament even in the old testament sometimes that means material wealth but most of the time blessing you means as peter says in his second sermon in acts that god is going to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways that being restored from being rebels under God's condemnation, he is going to restore us to people that reflect his character and are in fellowship with him. That's the blessing. And Solomon goofed it up. Um, so let's switch gears here for just a minute. I've been talking about the big picture. And I'm my mantra is that the big picture and the details go together, right? Because... The big picture is simply made out of details, and the details, their only function is to make the big picture, right? Um, if I take Lee 's kidneys out and lay them on the table, they might be interesting, but they're of no use to themselves or to Lee if they're not connected to the rest of Lee, right? So let's think about details. We're going to talk about dialogue in a little bit, but I'm going to jump the gun because um, this is this is something. This is the kind of thing that's all through. Old Testament Hebrew narrative. Well, I'll just tell you, I won't have you turn there. For one thing, I don't remember where it is in the chapter. But when when the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon, we're going to talk about dialogue in a little while. Dialogue, or in this case, it's monologue. Very extremely important in Hebrew narrative. The only dialogue that's recorded, or monologue, is what the Queen of Sheba tells Solomon about his, his wealth and his wisdom. And it's amazing what she says. This is typical Old Testament narrative. Here's this pagan monarch, and she attributes Solomon's success in his wisdom to God. And says, God has sent you to bring justice or righteousness or something. Anyway, this pagan says, God has given all of this to you for the benefit of the nation. This is part of the homework, Simon. What does Solomon tell her about his wealth and wisdom? This is a trick question. He doesn't, there's not a thing. That's, you may think I'm pulling this out of the air, but when you get familiar with Hebrew narrative, you find out that often it's there'll be a deafening silence when people don't say something that they should have. Same thing happened to Hezekiah when the envoys from Babylon came, except in the text we're specifically told that Hezekiah dropped the ball. Here we're not told was. Uh, so my point here is you see that that detail about this thing that the queen of Sheba said and Solomon's silence, that little detail in the story, especially when you get familiar to reading Hebrew, that would leap off the page It's like it was highlighted but you might miss it until you get used to it but that detail builds this whole thing that comes all the way back here to Deuteronomy when we're given in, when God is given instructions about what the king should and should not do all the way to the very end of Old Testament history when Solomon in his wisdom is brought up and Nehemiah is beating people and pulling their hair out because they're doing the same thing Solomon did By the way, Solomon and the Queen's visit to him gets mentioned in the New Testament by Jesus too. And you can kind of think when Jesus when you think in that context, and Jesus says, "You know, Solomon in all of his splendor, I don't remember what he puts it, but anyway, he says something- well, I'm getting two stories mixed up between the flowers, but anyway, and Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here." Well, on the one hand, you could think, well, yeah, Solomon was smart and had a lot of riches, but he wasn't as rich and smart as Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is saying, Solomon was a man and he was a sinner and none of those kings can rescue you. You're not going to find a king that's going to save your country. But I can. Anyway. Anyway. So big picture and um, details. So, we have to be careful when we teach kids all these Bible stories. We leave God out we can leave God out of them. when we can talk all about Noah and Abraham and Moses and mm-hmm. forget the major role God's of God all this. Yeah. Yeah, I know when our kids were little, and probably some of you other parents have done that. When our kids were little, we bought some books. And also, you know, we're, well, we're the religious people. So our relatives, well, for our religious cousin or something, they, we'll get them a Bible, kid's Bible book for their children. And we threw several of them away because um, they, <laughs> they weren't what the Scripture said. I'm going to waste time telling stories about that. I still have a picture of Abraham in one of them. He's He's got this wavy gold hair and there's these butterflies and flowers and he's just longing to know God. And Well, that's not what God, that's not what the Scripture presents. He was a pagan sun worshiper and God, out of his initiative and in his mercy, reached out and grabbed him. Mm. Um, obstacles reading the whole story the way it was written I hope this is helpful and it doesn't just sound like I have an axe to grind but this comes from decades of studying scripture and using commentaries and translating and working with missionaries from other countries and teaching uh, first of all it 's fashion i won 't spend as much time on this as I did the other time. Um, but I have in your notes you know over over the centuries and various times in history, there have been different fashions about how you find the real meaning of scripture either it 's just real mystical you 're in a trance or else everything 's an allegory nothing 's real, but you know the the fish in Jonah represent something, and this represents something. And every verse, you've got five different images rather than, well, what happened is Jonah disobeyed, and the Lord used a fish to haul him back. Um, all of y'all probably been in studies where you get a book of the Bible, and you read a verse, and you go around the room, everybody says, well, what does this mean to you? What does that mean to you? And I was trying to remember the name Kierkegaard last time. I had to read a lot of stuff in seminary about different people and this existential thing it's just you just have an encounter with the word and each verse is just floating out there, not connected to anything. Well right now most of us are from a background where serious Bible study is considered to be um uh, detailed analysis and excruciating detail of little tiny parts of stuff. Okay? And I do a lot of that. Um I've I had the fortune good fortune to get to go to seminary and study some stuff, and I do that, but where you can get in trouble is get lost just doing that, and you never back up and just see well, what in the world is going on um, there's also this notion that you know the real meat of the Bible, the real spiritual meat. You find buried in these little nuggets somewhere in a part of a verse, you know, and, and that's so strong, it gets to where it's kind of like the pinnacle of scholarship is if you can write a whole book that's supposedly based on one verse or a part of a verse, it's like, boy, that person's really getting into the word now. They're really getting into it. And, um, <clears throat> and also, This especially in Old Testament narrative is is uh, books of the Bible are thought as, especially in the Old Testament, like Genesis is just a collection of little short stories that aren't really connected. And it's not even expected that all of them are part of one unified story, which they are. I've given this example before, and I used it with the kids one time in the children's Sunday school. Uh, about how every part of the story is an integral part of the whole story. And I asked the kids how many of them had seen um, uh, Frozen, the Frozen movies. And I think all the kids raised their hand. Most of them did. And and I saw one of them with my grandkids. And there was a scene where a person was riding this horse that was either made out of water or ice or something. I don't know what it was. But it was a really dramatic scene. There was neat music and real emotional but anyway, in the Sunday school class, I asked the kids, I said, I have no idea what that was about. What was that about? Well, nearly every kid in there immediately could tell me the whole story of uh, Frozen and what that particular scene, how that fit into the whole story. And we should be doing that anytime we read about the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon or anything else or the whole thing with Judah and Tamar What on earth is that doing in there? And I'll guarantee you it's in there as an integral part of the story. It's not just a random thing thrown in there. And there are a lot of commentaries written by people with lots of degrees writing expensive commentaries that think that the Old Testament books are just random collections of very awkwardly cobbled together short stories by some rabbis at some point who didn't really know what they were doing. That's not true. Uh, Next thing that I want to say obstacle to reading the story the way it was written is that's chapter and verse marking. And this is actually the this section is the reason that I have um, a PowerPoint to use is. Chapter and verse markings. Remember that the chapter and verse markings are not a part of the original text. They were added very, very recently. And the significance of that is they very seldom correspond to the actual structure and content of the book. Whether it's narrative or epistles or prophets or anything else, it's very seldom that those divisions correspond to the actual contents of the book. Now, if you buy a book today, like one of your textbooks, or if you buy a novel, the chapters do make sense because it's the author that put them in there. But that's not true in the Bible. So, we're going to talk about camouflage for a minute, and this is why I want to show these pictures. You know, camouflage, we tend to think of colors blending in, but really a big part of camouflage is what is. What is this guy, what is all this stuff here for? Well, what it is, it's pattern disruption. Right, The way I can recognize that Cece is even a person is because she's got a head that's shaped like a person's head and there's a pattern. There's eyes and a nose and ears and lips. And I can recognize her as a person because I recognize the pattern. That's how you recognize things. And so it's not just a matter of changing the color. you, You change the shape of things. So in a distance, you don't see something that's shaped like a head. That's why the Navy would do stuff like this. Well, you can tell that's a ship, but I suspect if it's hauled down near the horizon through a haze, the whole point is, yeah, but what kind of ship? What direction is it going? That's the thing because it disrupts the pattern. Now, you may think that looks silly, but hang on to your table because you might get dizzy. Look at that. I was astonished when I found that picture. And you you may have figured out what it is. I was not... It took me quite a while to figure out what it is. But believe it or not, it's one of those. And you'll recognize that from like McHale's Navy or, if you're more sophisticated, PT-109 or something like that. But, you know, you look at that and you can tell what it is. You may not be a seaman and you may not know the names of the parts, but you can tell that's something. It looks like a boat. There's the front of the boat and there's that's something. Maybe I don't know what it is, but I can tell it's something. And there's another one back there. And here's a thing. I don't know what it is, but there's a thing. But at least you can tell what it is. I put that in for um, Roger. The plane's actually upside down. Um, but the reason that this works is because what that pattern does is it makes you try to make this be something. I can't tell what that is. And it makes you you want to try to make it That be something. Actually, it took me a long time to figure out. I think that's two boats. But see, it makes you... You want to make that be something. But it's not. It's not anything. This is something. Okay, I'll show you some more pattern disruption. Okay, that's a book. Okay, and you would read it. And the pattern in there comes from the content. You know, when you read it, you just follow the author's thinking. But this is pattern disruptive camouflage. When they put chapter and verses, now this is an old version of Nasby where they did like the King James, and every verse starts a new paragraph. And in fact, five of the verses on that page start in the middle of a page. And this chapter division, whoops, this chapter, uh, chapter division there is actually very inappropriate because that suggests that there's a big division there, but there's not. This is just a continuation of Jesus and His same teaching. Uh, there's actually not a division there at all. So what's happening is that instead of saying, okay, I'm going to see, look at this and I'm going to look at that and figure out what that is and look at that and figure out what it is and figure out how they're part of this whole thing, instead you're looking at this and trying to make it something, but it's not. It's actually a piece of that and a piece of this and a piece of that. So what happens when we study the Bible? Okay, I put this thing up here as a representation of Genesis because Genesis is just easy to outline because there's the first couple of pages of creation in heaven and earth and then what the, there's 11. Um, these are the generations of. And each one of those starts a unit. Now, some of those units are only three sentences long and some of them are 15 pages long. But each one of those is a unit, and each one of those units fits into the story as a whole. Because each time a new unit starts, it's picking up someone in the previous unit. Or in the fact, with uh, the unit on the generations of Isaiah, he ends up having two sons, Esau um, and Jacob. And then there's two generations of Esau because it's given two different things about him. And then it picks up Jacob and that finishes out the book. So if you read each of those with the expectation that each of those has some kind of coherent meaning and it coherently fits in the whole story of Genesis, Genesis makes a lot more sense. If you read the generations of Jacob uh, to the end, which is chapter 37 to the end, If you read that as a unit and expect it to make sense, and also if you expect God to be the main character, then you don't have any trouble figuring out what the section about Judah and Tamar is about. Although, in one of our textbooks, he refers to that as an intrusion, and after it's over, then he resumes the story of Joseph. Which, go back and find my sermon on the story of Jacob's line from... I did a sermon a few years ago. Anyway, that's not what it's about. Um, after I did that sermon, I have a, I, I taught that one place and there's a friend of mine who's been a, a preacher for decades and after I taught it, he came up to me and he said all the years that he's been preaching, there was only one time that he skipped a section in a passage because he didn't know what to do with it and it was Judah and Tamar. Okay, but... If you're looking for that, you'll find it. But what will happen is if you think that those 50 chapters are each some kind of logical unit, and if you take this and you try to make that something, you won't have any success. Now, like all of y'all in here probably, I spent decades, that's how I was taught to study the Bible is you read through and you make chapter titles, and that's never worked very well for me because it's like a jigsaw puzzle. If uh, if you take a piece out of a jigsaw puzzle and I say, "Okay, what is this, Linda?" <laughs> it's a piece of a puzzle. It's not anything. It's got a piece of this and a piece of that. You know, it's not anything. That's the whole point. It's a game. A jigsaw puzzle is a game because it's cut it all up into pieces, into things that are not anything. That's not anything. Of course, it doesn't make sense. You know, what's a thing is a picture of a tree in a jungle. You know, that big cat's a thing. That butterfly is a thing. The tree is a thing. And so when we read the Bible, what we want to do is just let the author, let him show us what the sections are and let those be things and the chapter and verse breaks are just like the little grid on your atlas, you know, the A's and A's, the letters and the numbers. It's just very random and it's very handy to use it to say, okay, turn to chapter 27, verse 3, as long as you know that the chapter divisions don't correspond, they rarely correspond to the structure of the book. Now I spent a lot of time on that because I consider that one of the biggest handicaps. It was for me, my my filing cabinet. I'm not. My filing cabinet is full of stuff that I both studied and taught. Going chapter. Here's the this chapter title. I found my Genesis chapter titles looking through my files yesterday. Okay, so I beat that into the ground. Um, next one. Obstacles, our inherent tendency to make the primary human character in the story the hero rather than God. Exhibit A, the story of Joseph. It's not the story of Joseph. It tells you right at the beginning. It's the generations of Jacob. It's Jacob and his descendants. And God, is. it starts out telling us what a train wreck their family is. Abraham and all of them, I mean, they are... They are the poster child for dysfunction, violence, murder. It's, and, and Jacob too. Jacob's a wreck. And it's the story of God. God is mentioned 51 times in 37 to the end of the chapter as he is working circumstances and in people's lives, in Jacob's life, in Judah's life, in Joseph's life, in all of the brothers. And he's bringing them around to recognizing their sins, their selfishness, and bringing them to repentance and reconciliation with each other and to the point where they're acknowledging themselves as servants of God. For the first 12 years of that story, none of the characters ever mention God. The narrator does. The characters never mention God for the first 12 years of that story. All right. Um... Just a couple more absence of public reading of Scripture. You know, we're from church tradition. We just don't we don't do public reading of Scripture. Just, you know, maybe a few verses or a paragraph or two. Um, I brought my Tanakh. It's the the, it's the Jewish Old Testament It's the same books as our Protestant Old Testament. Uh, But in the in the front of this, just about any whether it's Hebrew or English translation of the Tanakh, it has the reading schedule And in synagogue, every Sabbath, they have a scripture reading and they read Genesis through Deuteronomy every year. Um, And that's only, in my Bible, that's only about three pages every Sabbath. In my Bible, it's about 170 pages. And uh, they read all of that. And I was thinking, what if in our churches, if every Sunday we just took Luke, Acts, i am pull it out of there, Luke, Acts, Romans, and Revelation... And we just however many pages we need to divide that up. Every Sunday we just read through that every year. Just a thought. Jeff uh, Yeah. How many people had scriptures to read or could read in that time? Versus where we have multiple copies of the Bibles and I can read lots of scripture on other than public Sundays, right? Yes. Yeah. does that somewhat influence something about how that's beneficial or not? Yeah. That's a good question. I think about it a lot. And in, in, you guys know I'm heavily influenced by the fact that I work in Papua New Guinea mm. in an area where they don't have books. And they would be in, that, they would be in the mode. They would, be in, they would be in that category. The only way you could read, they can hear a scripture. Yes. Is read but I will tell you something. I'm surprised at the response I got from last week when I read that much of Mark is one lady, it may have been somebody in here, I don't know who, I don't, if my wife told me who it was, I don't remember. Somebody came up to her and said, you know what? She said, David was going through and I was trying to follow in my Bible and I just kept getting sleepy and I thought, man, I'm just going to listen. She said, as soon as I just started listening, she said, I started hearing a whole lot more and it got exciting. And um, There's something to be said for listening. Well, I'm actually going to say later, I think for most people, and I thought Keith was going to be here and he could rebut me. Nearly everyone that read scripture yesterday said, turn to your Bible and follow. And when I did last week, I was going to encourage people to not do that. Just listen. Most people will get a whole lot more if they just listen than if they try to follow along. Exhibit A, I'm using a lot of time. Exhibit A. How many of you, if you're watching a movie that's in English, assuming you can hear it, I'm assuming you can hear it, how many of you turn the closed captions on so you can read at the bottom because it helps you follow the story better? They're speaking in Scottish dialect. Yes. Well, if you're having trouble hearing them, and I realize that in a movie it is visual, you're watching watching something. But actually, if you ever do that, listening to... watching a movie, try reading the captions and see how much it's actually harder. It's harder. It'll trip you up. So, anyway. So, so David, I think the point you're making is that the original audience for the Bible, especially the Old Testament, was an audience that was, they received the word as a spoken testimony. Yes. something they originally received as a written document. And I would say that a big part of that is that's probably one reason so much of the Bible is written in the form, in story form. It is not written like a newspaper article. It's not written like a police report. Just the facts, ma'am. You know, it's written in story form to catch you up in it. Okay, so let's go to some details because this is what I was going to... Oh, poor reading skills. A lot of people just can't read. They can't read a book in their native language and tell you what the story was about or read an article in a magazine and tell you what the article was about, what the writer's point was, Uh, and that's something that you can just help with. So um, just some suggestions. That's in your handout. Um, You can get Bibles... ...that don't have the chapter and verses marked in it. It'll just be in the margin. Katie has this. It's the Modern Reader's Bible, published in 1908. So it's 110 years old. <laughs> but um, also, Carrie and I have the Immersed Bible. It's kind of awkward because it's five volumes. It's The format is such that it's not condensed in one little book like this. But uh, it doesn't have the chapter and verses marked in the text... And it is astonishing, if you've never read one of these, how much easier it is to read. And it will also help you realize how short the books of the Bible are. Does it follow the same exact words? words Uh, Most of these things will be some particular version. This happens to be the New Living Translation. But yes, so... It's simply a matter of how it's formatted. It's not a matter of the translation, it's how it's formatted. Now, the books in this are not in the same order as in this. Yeah. But remember, that's very recent. Even when they started binding Bibles together, there's no telling what order they would be in. In the books in my. Hebrew Old Testament are not in the same order as in my English Bible. In fact, I started looking for Ruth a minute ago, and I was, why isn't it there right behind Song of Solomon, where it belongs? Um, Okay. Uh, Get one of those. I suggest when you read, have a Bible reading plan. I'm sorry. But I would suggest it might help you, rather than reading chapter by chapter, If you do that, you're going to be assuming that those chapters are some kind of logical units and they're not. I recommend either just reading until, just like you read any book. You say, okay, it seems like we're going to break here. I'll stop here. Or just divide up the pages. Because if you're reading and you get interrupted and you just know, well, I'm at the bottom of page 120, you know that that's not a logical break. You know it's just random. That just happens to be the page you're on. So I would suggest that when you read, don't say, okay, I'm going to read three chapters a day. Say, I'm going to read three pages a day, whatever that happens to be, and ignore the chapters. There's a, there's a page in your handout about that. Also, a thing you can do, like I do in mine, there's books where I have the actual, I've marked in red where the actual breaks are. Uh, so I'm looking at that and not at the chapters. That's not what those marks are, but anyway. So, how they're written. um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to read Ruth, and it's going to take me 11 minutes to read it. And you can just listen, and then I'll give you a handout of Ruth. Most of you already have one, but I'm going to give you one that has some stuff marked on it. And then what we'll do is we're going to fly through chapter by chapter, and I'll just point out some of the things that the writer is doing that are actually pretty obvious once you know about it and you look for it, but if no one's ever shown you, you don't know. I've just had the fortune of having some help. Okay, so here's the story. Now, it came about came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now, they entered the land of Moab and remained there. And then Elimelech, uh, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Milon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she'd heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people uh, in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we'll surely re- return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? No, return, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope and I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it's harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your son-in-law, or your daughter, sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. And thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they'd come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Naomi? And she said to him, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his servants who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, Oh, she's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said... Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And so she came and she's remained from the morning until now. Also, she's been sitting in the house for just a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Don't go glean in another field. Furthermore, don't go on from this one, but you stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and you go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants... Not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Well, she fell on her face and bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me? I'm a foreigner. But Boaz replied to her, Well, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and came to a people that you didn't previously know, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you came to seek refuge. And then she said, I found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you've comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservants, although I'm I'm not like one of your maidservants. In mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you can eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants saying, Hey, let her glean even among the sheaves and don't insult her. Also, you should purposely pull out some of the, um, some grain from the bundles and leave it so she can glean and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epa of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. And her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed to the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, That man's our relative. He's one of our redeemers. Then Ruth the, Moab- <coughs> Ruth the Moabite said, Furthermore, he said to me that you should stay close to my servants until they finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter in law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his maid, so that others don't fall on you, fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother in law. Then Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kin our Kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint. Put on your clothes and go down to the threshing floor. And don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And it'll be when he lies down that you'll notice the place where he lies. And you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. And then he'll tell you what you should do. And so Ruth said to her, all that you say, I'll do. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. So when Boaz uh, had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came in secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and he bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And she said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you're a redeemer. And then he said, May you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You've shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, don't fear. I'll do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you're a woman of excellence. Now, it's true, I am a redeemer. However, there is a redeemer closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if He'll redeem you, good, let Him redeem you. But if He does not redeem you, then I'll redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So he lay, she lay at His feet until morning and rose before one can recognize another. And He said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And again He said, Give me your cloak that's on you and hold it. So she held it, and He measured six barley's, six Measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, Don't go to your mother-in-law empty. Then, Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man won't rest until he's settled it today. Now Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. So he turned aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother uh, Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here, before the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if not redeem it, well, tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Well, the the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself. I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation. In Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, you buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Well then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you're witnesses today that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elamelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I've required Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. So that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You're witnesses today. Well, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, Yep, we're witnesses. <laughs> may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who's not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter in law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given you to given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amminadab. and to Amenadab, Nashon, And to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. Okay. So we've got that story. So what we're going to do is fly through and point out some of the things that you've read in the textbooks and in your notes. Chapter 1. The couple of things I want to point out here is in general, I forget how many things, some basic characteristics of biblical Hebrew narrative is what tends to happen is they will give a setting and then the people that are in that setting will dialogue. And what's happened is there's very little description. They don't draw you into the story by describing... um, uh, the conditions and what it looks like and what the weather's like. You read very little. This was dark and stormy nights in Hebrew. Um, they give a situation, and then what happens is uh, will, it'll move from one scene to the next. And when we think about the story, just overall of Ruth, what do we have? We've got about four or five sentences that cover probably 20 or 30 years to give us the situation, and then what, what do we have? we have Naomi and the girls on the road and there's this lengthy conversation yeah there's a lengthy conversation and then they and then they go to Bethlehem and there's kind of a debrief with the ladies of the village I'm going to use that term okay next scene what happens okay Ruth tells Naomi I'm going to go glean so we establish a scene. She goes into the field and there's this lengthy conversation between Ruth and Boaz about the situation. What they might do about it. And when that's over, Ruth goes back to her mother-in-law and debriefs. I cry when I read that. I think about all the times my daughter sat up till the middle of the night in the bed <laughs> Talk, <coughs> talking to her mama. Uh, She's in her 30s and has three kids. (laughs) She still does that. She's got to talk to her (laughs) mom. You guys, most of y'all are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Okay, so we come then to the third movement. And again, what we have is Naomi sends Ruth to the threshing floor. And there's this long conversation, this scene with Boaz on the threshing floor. And at the end, Ruth goes back, debriefs with Naomi. Then we come to the fourth movement, and again we have a scene where Boaz goes to the gate and gets this other uh, close relative in the elders, and there's this long conversation. And then in effect at the end, there's sort of a debrief again with the ladies of the village. Kind of the way the story started. So that's overall what happens, and that's typically what's going to happen in Old Testament narrative. There's going to be a situation, but it will move from scene to scene. And the narrator will only give you enough pieces of information and um, just to set the situation. Uh, And then what's going to happen is usually there will be a tremendous amount of dialogue. And dialogue is a far more important role in Old Testament narrative than in most of our um, stories. Some of the things that dialogue is used to do, uh, I'll just make a comment that usually what's happening is by the conversation that's going on, the narrator is... the storyteller is... that's all focusing on what is really the important part of the story and what are people thinking about. Um, In this particular story, look in chapter... Oh, now I'm going to pass these out and I'll explain. Mm -hmm. Or I might get one of y'all to pass those out. That's just Ruth. And I'll explain the color coding later. But as you look at the dialogue of chapter 1, there's several things that we pick up. And that's what the central issue in this story really is. Now... All of this comes out of this dialogue. The narrator's letting us see in dialogue where people's heads are at. And where is Naomi? She's obviously very sad. I mean, who wouldn't be? She's lost all her family. She's been in foreign country. She's going to try to go home. She doesn't know what's going to be there. be like there. And what does she tell the girls? She says, you guys go home and may the Lord bless you. By giving you security, basically in new families. Can you go home and get remarried? May the Lord bless you. But when they start pressing her and wanting to go with her instead of go home, what does she end up saying? I can't give you security. I can't give you security because I can't produce a child. I can't take care of you. Well, what happened to the Lord doing it? And when Orpah does go back, And she tries to tell Ruth, You need to follow your sister and go back to your gods. Wait a minute. She just said, May Yahweh bless you. Well, then what does she say about God? God has not blessed me. Not only has He not blessed me but he's kicked me in the ribs. I am down for the count. And if you go with me back to my country, he might do that to you. So which is it? Does Naomi trust God? May Yahweh bless you, sister. Well, Naomi's a real person. And she's like us. And we're just like this. Naomi's actually the main character. She's the second main character in the story because we realize that she's in the same situation. She's in the same mindset that Job is in the middle of the book of Job. That's not where he was at the beginning, but after his friends helped him along for several days, this is where he ended up. She is absolutely convinced God is in control, but also he's a bully. And the the conflict, the tension in this story is between God and Naomi. Does God care for his people or not? Like we see in many places, often it's the Jew who is struggling the most with faith. And we have a Moabite who at least is saying that she trusts the Lord. That's going to be a big thing later on. Um, So what we see in dialogue is the, the narrator will usually use dialogue to reveal where people are at. Only occasionally will the narrator say... He was angry. He was jealous or he was afraid. But even if the narrator tells you that, he will still leave you to read the story. He'll put it in the dialogue to find out okay, if he's afraid, why? If he's jealous, why? If he's angry, why? What did what did God ask Cain? Why are you angry? You know usually when some what when you ask a kid why they're mad, why do they do? They'll just tell you what the trigger is, but they won't they're not asking the question why did that why did they respond to that in anger so anyway uh so what you're going to find in Old Testament narrative is dialogue is everything well it's not everything but it almost is almost is uh. Let's go to chapter 2. Think about some things in chapter 2. Um, yes, thank you very much. I've, you know, it occurred to me recently that I think Ruth is the only book that I know of where the chapter divisions actually fit the uh, the actual structure of the book and the chapter divisions are actually equal divisions. but. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I don't know Jonah nearly as well as you know Jonah much better than I do. I'm kind of a Ruth person. Um, so we come to chapter two and what we're gonna see here is uh again with dialogue that dialogue is mainly how we get to know the characters. We get to know the characters by things that they say themselves, but again, it's just like your neighbor. And just like Michael, when you're listening to Lee, now Lee's a pretty straight up guy, so he's not often trying to pull things. But a lot of times when people in the Bible are talking, they're real people. So a lot of times there's a lot of manipulation going on. There's a lot of just flat out lying going on. There's a lot of self-deception going on. Uh, people just flat being wrong, like Job's counselors. A lot of the stuff they said was just wrong. Um, so, but if you're reading the story and you recognize that you begin, you might begin to pick that up about people's character that, uh, you know, they may be well intentioned, but they just don't know much. Or actually the guy's a slime bag and he's trying to get away with something. It's just real life. that's all going on. Um, and the other thing that's a really big deal that the narrators will often use for dialogue and it's really cool the way they do this, I think this is really neat, is often the, the narrator will give us information through one of the characters that we otherwise wouldn't know. Uh, in our books, usually the narrator would tell you that, but here often the writer will let the narrator tell us that. or They'll let a character in the story tell us that. For example, and there's, this has two things... Um, connected with well for example um, the fact that it was dangerous in Bethlehem for Ruth now this is something that's weird and even your two textbooks disagree about this if you read this you'll find some commentaries that will say Bethlehem was an exceptional place because everybody was saying bless you may the Lord bless you may the Lord bless you Well, you know, a lot of people in Texas and Alabama will tell you that and then hang you. (laughs) Uh, But you also need to think about why does what does Ruth say? I mean, what does Naomi tell Ruth about just moving around? Why does don't go that What does Boaz say? What did he tell the men that work for him? Why do you think he needed to tell him that? Yeah, this it's all over here that this is a very dangerous situation. Um, um, another thing, another piece of information that is very important, this relates to how the narrator gives us information through dialogue. Is up until the point that Boaz presents this situation to the closer relative. Why does the closer relative not want to redeem the land and marry Ruth? I mean, he just says, he just says, why? well, first he says, yeah, I'll do it, I'll buy the land. But then he backs out. Why? It It would endanger his inheritance. What does Boaz say about that? Absolutely nothing. Why? That's the kind of thing... Now, now, if you're not familiar with Ruth or Hebrew narrative, you might think I'm pulling this out of the air, but this is the kind of thing that's all over the place. Probably, the narrator is telling us the same thing will probably happen to Boaz. It's going to cost him. But as we read what Boaz says, how does he figure that into the calculus of whether or not he's going to help these women? It's not even a factor. That's the kind of thing that is in dialogue all over the place. If, if you just know that kind of thing is there and you're not dreaming it up... Um, Yes. Um, Yeah, and I think, well, I think that the, the reason the story is told that way is to show that dichotomy. This guy's looking at a business deal that he thinks is going to work out for him, but if it's going to cost his portfolio in the long run, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Even though he's a redeemer... Um, the handout I gave you with Ruth, every place that the Hebrew word in some grammatical form, Redeemer, occurs. And I was reading Nasby, but I changed several things. I said Redeemer. Every place that it's in red font, it's that word. There's like one sentence in there five times. He's the Redeemer. He's the Redeemer. He's the Redeemer. But He won't redeem. Which was His responsibility under the law. Now, I will say this, that... When you go back to the Mosaic Law, there's there's a hiccup here that lots of books have been written about. You can read about the whole Redeemer that when people are poor in their, their traditional land that had been allotted to them, that they have to sell it because of their poverty, that a relative, there's things they can do. Basically, it's to protect people from just ongoing being destitute from now on. There's a separate instructions about what's called levirate law, which is just from the Latin meaning brother, that if, a, that if a person dies and his wife is childless, then the dead man's um, brother is supposed to marry her. And so there will be a child to carry on the brother's name. Uh, this is the only place in the Bible where those two things are connected. Uh, the only thing I'll say about that is that when Boaz does that, no one balks. Uh, the redeemer, the other relative, doesn't. All of the elders. One thing that the narrator makes very clear is everything is straight above board. There's nothing fishy going on. So all I say, whatever Boaz is doing, if I don't understand it from Deuteronomy, it doesn't matter. They were comfortable that Boaz was handling everything legitimately. So I'll just leave that there. But the point is, uh, often the way the lord the way the storyteller will give us information will be through dialogue from one of the characters and that can be real important uh, i think i told this the other day i don't, this only struck me recently that uh, that when the when the brothers threw joseph in the pit and they were planning to kill him when you read the story the narrator just says they threw him in the pit and they sat down to eat just how cold-blooded that is, and I didn't even think. Well, what's Joseph doing all this time? Well, how does the narr- how does the storyteller let us know what was occurring? Well, it's several pages later when God has been working in the brothers' lives, gradually bringing them to the recognition of the gravity of the sin that they've committed. And they're out on the trail. They think they're in trouble. They've got this whole thing with the silver and the sacks. They don't know what's going on. They've seen Joseph, but they didn't recognize him. They don't know what's going on. But what are they starting to recognize? We have, God has found out our sin. <laughs> I can't even say it. And is it they? If the, as they are recognizing the gravity of their sin that they had committed, I think at that point, is 22 years earlier. They describe the sin. And it's one of the brothers that say, didn't the boy plead with us? And how powerful that is, that now we learn that through one of the characters who was there, who at the time thought... The runt. I'm going to sit down and eat my sandwich. Now they're on the trail. Scared and racked with guilt. And they think back. The boy pleaded with us. Alright. Cheer up, David. Yeah, it does. It does. The Lord, I mean, that whole family. Jacob, Joseph... Judah, all the brothers of the Lord. Man, He did a number on them. Um, changing their hearts. Chapter 3. Let's go to chapter 3 and talk about some things. Um, I said some things. That, uh, repetition. Repetition is a big deal, and your textbooks talk about that. Often something will happen, and then you get like, the two or three different accounts by people reporting it. Like we see the conversation between boaz and ruth and then we get to hear about it again when ruth goes to her mother-in-law and tells her all about it debriefs late at night a lot of times these repetitions they'll be the same and they'll just emphasize it gives you a second chance to remember it but very often i would say probably most of the time there'll be little differences there'll be little differences Sometimes it's a big difference. Like when the narrator tells us what the brothers did with Joseph, and then we have an account of what the brothers told their father. They lied to him, and they deceived him with a cloak, just like Jacob had done to his father decades earlier. But then we get to hear about it again later on when the brothers are on the trail, and they're being honest with each other about what they've done. So a lot of time when there's repetition, what's going to be different is the perspective of the person who's telling it. And the Lord is revealing it to us things about what was happening and what they're thinking and how people are responding to the situation God has put them in and how God is dealing with them. As I said in in this um, generation of Jacob, what you get later on, is uh, you finally begin to hear... The brothers and Jacob and Joseph started to mention God as being involved in what's going on. He's not at the beginning. Um, and again, the narrator, over and over and over, it tells you God caused this, God caused that. Um, I'm gonna. I wasn't gonna do this, but I, I decided to, and I put it in my notes. I'm gonna mention about types of characters because that's a big deal in Ruth. Don't worry about technical terms. You do this anytime you read a book or watch a movie. you got the main characters and then you've got the extra, right? It's just the waiter in the restaurant who set the plate on the table and then he walked away, right? So there are a lot of those in the biblical stories too. But there's something kind of in between. Usually the main one or two characters that are really the one that we're getting all, like Naomi... We're getting the positives and the negatives. They're a real person. They're struggling up and down. They're wavering. They're, it's ambiguous where they are spiritually. They're good one day. They're bad another day. Uh, that's usually the, what the main character's like. In, in literary terms, those are called round characters. They're, their character development is really big. There are other characters that are flat. And by that they mean they're just all good or they're all bad. Okay, so like Ruth and Boaz are flat characters. Um, they're just, um, we don't see any kind of flaws or anything. They have a role in the story in their intersection with Naomi's life. Um, these, these flat characters, they can either be good or bad. Um, sometimes they can be, you'll see the terms in your book, they'll be a type In other words, they're an example of what a good person would do. They use the resources God has given them to help people that are in need. Like Ruth did that and Boaz did that. Whether you're rich or poor, you can use what God gives you to help other people. Or they can be a foil. That is just a contrast like um, the closer relative who decided not to redeem because it was going to cost him. He's a foil in the sense that He's a contrast to Boaz. It's because of what we learn about what he's doing and why he's doing it that it makes it more clear what Boaz is doing and why he's doing it. Uh, Probably the biggest foils in the whole Bible, and these are both round characters, is David and Saul. Uh, Saul, if we're just going to rank sins or weigh them in a scale, I think David... David could give Saul a run for his money. But what's the what's the real underlying difference between David and Saul as presented in the Scripture? Over pages and pages and pages. David was, see- was a seeker after God's things and Saul was a seeker after his own things. And even when David sought after his own things and he sinned, what did he do when he was confronted? He repented. Yeah. He repented. What did Saul do? Made he made excuses. He He did what kids do. He did what we do. We complain. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't punish me. You know, David, David repents. And so there's that foil. So often these characters, they'll be in contrast to each other. Another thing um, I'll point out is terms of address. Terms of address. Um, I just did this in a hurry and I don't, I couldn't find some of my notes. But in your thing that I pass out to Ruth, all the places where it's underlined are all the different ways that Ruth is either referred to or she's addressed. And I remember counting it one time when I was working through it in Hebrew that I think there's 14 different ways that Ruth is either referred to or addressed. And of course, it will depend on the relationship, right? All of us get referred to or addressed different ways depending on who's talking to us about what and why. My boss did not talk to me, address me the same way that my grandchildren do. And people that are mad at me don't address me the same way as people that are pleased with me. Uh, This is especially important with Ruth because as you read through Ruth, the way Ruth refers to herself talking to Boaz changes as the story progresses. I'll leave that for you to work through. The way she refers to herself when she's initially thankful for his help is different from when she asked him to marry her. Um, Chapter 4. I won't go much longer. I had to struggle with doing this one without irritating you. But it's just such a huge thing in Hebrew narrative. And it's used in the New Testament narrative some too. Um, But the thing with Ruth is it's hidden by your English translation. And that is that Hebrew narrative will often use pairs of words. They'll use the same word in two different places intentionally to connect those two things. Okay, the one I'm sure all of you have heard about in the New Testament is the charcoal fire. That term, I think the Greek term only gets used twice. But anyway, Peter is warming himself by the charcoal fire when he denies Christ. Okay, what is Jesus cooking over when he talks to Peter after the resurrection? And what does he ask him about three times? And Peter says, Lord, you know me. The last time Jesus told Peter You're gonna deny me, Peter argued with him. You don't know me, Jesus. No, I'm there. We're solid brother. <laughs> now when Jesus questions, Peter says You know me? In Ruth, I've marked in your notes and uh in that, that I handed out what I did is highlighted them in the same color. Um, In chapter 1, Naomi says, Ruth, may the Lord grant you, who knows what your Bible says, rest, security, and the home of your new husband. At the beginning of chapter 3, Naomi says, Should I not provide you with? That's the same word, Manoach. Now, even if you don't know Hebrew and even if your English translation didn't translate the same way, do you see if you're you're listening to the idea, you still get it. You don't have to know Hebrew to catch this. The only thing about recognizing there's the same Hebrew word is you realize how intentional it is that the author put it in there, that this is intentional. I'm not making it up. A couple of the other ones that I put in there, um, what does Boaz say to Ruth about... uh, May the Lord bless you under whose wing you have come for provision. Well, then when Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz, who's a a relative and a redeemer, to ask him to marry her, she says, put your... Yeah, but it's the same Hebrew word, kanaf. Put your wing over me. She's saying, you prayed for God to take care of me? I think you're the answer to your prayer. You do it. Uh, Noble woman. This one's interesting. Uh, Your Bible probably says that Boaz was a wealthy and influential man. And then Boaz tells Ruth later in the chapter that you are a... I don't know what your Bible says. Woman of excellence. It's the same word. Now what's interesting about that and about a lot of these word pairs is one of the uses will be very unusual. Ruth, that term is used probably over a hundred times of men. Ruth is the only woman in the Bible. The only named woman in the Bible that this term is used for. That's the term used in um, Proverbs 31. And there's one other proverb that talks about a noble wife. But she's the only specific woman that that term is used for. So it just stands out as a red flag. Uh, Then the last one is it's an inclusio. At the beginning of the story, what do the women say about Naomi when they see her condition? Is this this Naomi? I can't believe the state she's in. What do they say at the end of the story? God has blessed you, Naomi. What does Naomi say? We don't know. We don't know where Naomi is. Um, oh, I'll give one other because I'm sure it's intentional. She's mad at God. She tells the ladies, I went out full. God sent me back empty. And when Boaz is sending Ruth back after gleaning the field... You must not return to your empty yeah, and it just says empty actually. The English they ended, they added handed just to make it sound better. It said, don't go back empty. Okay. So, uh, we just showed examples of things that are in your books and in your notes. But I think that will kind of give you a flavor of the kind of things to look for. I would just encourage you that Old Testament narrative is crammed, jammed, full of character development and emotion if you just know how it's presented and read it that way. It is absolutely incredible. And also, each time you read a section or a book, if you assume that it's one coherent story it will, and you ignore the chapter divisions, it'll usually be quite clear. Okay, I'm done and I went over again. Uh, How about I will just go ahead and pray and we'll stop and then uh, I'll hang around for a few minutes. Lord, we do thank you for your grace and mercy and that you have given us your word to be a light and not something, a confusing puzzle to trip us up. Lord, we realize it's a mystery to those who reject your truth, but Lord, we desire that you would help us to uh, be willing to receive it and you would make it clear, and that you would help us respond. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.